If you have your Bibles and will turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to read three verses to you. 1 John 4 and verses 9, 10, and 11. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I found the word love mentioned seven times in that short little passage in its various forms. Loved, loved, and beloved. So what I'd like to do is I want to talk about that act of God that God did for us when he sent his son to come to earth. Now, as I look at this particular passage, I want you to notice that the word there's a word and. It says he sent his son, yes, and to be propitiation for our sins. He loved us and he sent his son to be propitiation. When Jesus died on the cross, propitiation <clears throat> was one of the things Jesus accomplished. That's, but under that umbrella, there's other things he did too. So I'm going to just take a second and try to give you an illustration. A while back, and I can't remember, it's been several years, I saw a television show, and it was kind of a, a whodunit. There was a, a person that was killed that worked for a pharmaceutical company. And this particular pharmaceutical company created a new drug. And there was evidently some test run and there was some side effects that the company decided to bury. Okay? And they decided to hide because if that came out, they couldn't release it and it would cost them millions and millions of dollars. And what I would like to show you is with this particular television show that I watched that there were three offenses, okay? The first one was the laws they broke when they hid the test results. The second thing is, is the side effects cause damage, which cause additional um, medical procedures, maybe losses of wages. That is a financial hardship. And then there is something that's what I would call emotional. In our day in society, we try to call it uh, a settlement, and we put a dollar value on it for pain and suffering. Uh, and, and I don't know if there's things you can put on pain and suffering, especially if you lose a, a spouse or a child or something like that. But those are the three areas where there's an offense. Well, it turns out that when... We sinned not only through Adam, but also we continue to sin. We do the same three things. The first thing is, is we break the law. And when you look at some of the things Jesus did, like he got us pardoned, he got us justified, and I even think you could throw the word mercy in there, those three things describe that legal aspect of what we broke. And then there's the financial aspect that when he comes back and you look at the words like redemption and ransom and paid and bought and purchased, those words describe the financial loss 
that's being accomplished. And Jesus finished that too. But then there's a part of the schism, what sin did between mankind and God. And those words, what Jesus Christ did was he reconciled us. He made us propitiation is to satisfy. And there's words like that. So when you look at this silly television show, Hugh Dunnett, that I watched several years ago, there's three aspects of that offense. Well, there's three aspects of sin on God. And when Jesus came back, he took care of this. This verse is specifically singling out propitiation, which is the mental or the emotional part of it. Now, think about it this way, and it's, it's very much in line with Brother Brian just prayed. We couldn't keep the law, and we throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. But it's interesting. A righteous God does not let an innocent man go in terms of the law. Someone had to pay that penalty for us, and Jesus did in our stead. So the law was still satisfied. And what Brother Brian also prayed, he says, we don't have enough money to pay for the consequences. And matter of fact, money doesn't mean anything to God. He wanted something more valuable than stones and gold. He wanted the blood of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we come to that emotional schism that's between us and God. And God is so holy and just, we cannot approach him. And even if we could approach him, as soon as we looked at him, we'd die. But there was one that could approach him, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. So when we look at this act of love, under this umbrella of love, are all these things that God did. Now, in this particular verse, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to spend some time defining some more terms. But I want to look at four places in this. Number one, where it says God sent his only begotten son. I want to talk about that for a second. To be the propitiation for our sins. I kind of just roughly breached that right there. That we are actually beloved. And then because we're beloved, our duty is to love one another. Now, if you remember last week, I spent a whole time defining love. And we found out in Scripture, there was the Bible, the Bible uses the word love in five different ways. There's a love we have that's sensual, that's self. There's a love we have that's satisfying, that's self. We have a love that's social, that's mostly self. It could be the other. We have a love that's sacred, worshiping God, it's going one way, but then we have a love towards other, which is sacrificial, which actually costs us. When you look at those five love types, the only one that can be under consideration when God is working in the action of love, it's that fifth one, it's the sacrificial, because he sent his son to die for us. There isn't anything sensual about him, there isn't anything... That he, he, he longs for a taste or an ego. There isn't anything social that he needs from us. He certainly doesn't worship us. So the only thing left for him in these love types is that 
sacrificial love. So we're, we're kind of getting down there, okay? So with that being said, when we say God loved the unlovable, think about it this way. I just thought of a few of them. Included under this love umbrella, he forgave the unforgivable. And he showed mercy to the unmerciful. And he justified the unjustifiable. And he cured the incurable. And he redeemed the unredeemable. And he pardoned the unpardonable. And he atoned the unatonable. And he removed the unremovable. And you can probably finish up that list and double that list. But those are all the things that are underneath that umbrella that when Jesus came. I want to try to give you a couple illustrations. So let's go to the first one. And the first one I want to look at someone we studied a little while ago. That's the Old Testament judge named Gideon. He's an example of where he showed mercy to the unmerciful. When we studied his life on a Sunday night, we noticed that Gideon had this great victory. And after he had the great victory, the enemy was running and he was in the mop-up operation and he was chasing 300 soldiers. I can't remember. I think it was like chasing 12,000 soldiers. I think that's what the number was. 300 chasing 12,000. As the 300 were chasing, can you imagine being these men, these princes of Succoth? And they look and they see an army of 12,000 go by and they see 300 people chasing them. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? And, 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 and the army that was running had been put them in bondage and took their food and their clothing and their livestock and their cattle and their crops and everything. They, they just, for years and years, they just, so food was very, very valuable. And all of a sudden, Gideon comes by with his 300 soldiers and says, give us a little food. And they said, are you sure? No, we can't do that. Those guys, food's precious. And they balked. And Gideon says, oh yeah, when I come back after my victory, I'm going to tear the skin off your hides. The point is, is when I read this passage, he tore the skin off their hides because they doubted him. Well, what we found in the earlier chapter when Gideon was told to go on this, battle? He doubted God. He needed six encouragements before he finally said, okay, I'm going to go after this army. And here's these people from Sukkoth that balked at giving him a little food and he says, I'm going to tear the skin off your eyes. Do you understand? God showed mercy to the unmerciful. Okay? Judges 8, verse 14. This is in their mop-up operation, and, and this is after they had done the mop operation, and this is after he cursed them, and he says, when I get back, I'm going to tear the skin off your hide, and they're coming back right now. This is Gideon. And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and inquired of him and described unto him the princes of Succoth and the elders thereof, even threescore and seventeen, seventy-seven men. Where are those seventy-seven men? I owe them something. And he came to the men of Succoth, and behold, Zeba and Zalmanah, who, 
with whom ye did upbraid me, those are the kings of the bad guys, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana now in mine hand, that we should give bread unto the men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Now, he taught them. He didn't sit around in a classroom and give them a lecture and homework. He used thorns to teach them. Hey, you ever teach your child with a paddle? He's teaching them a lesson with the briars. And you're like, wow, Gideon, don't you think that's kind of rough? Well, my point is, in Hebrews 11, guess who we find in Hebrews 11? And what shall I say more, that the time would fail me to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David also and Samuel and the prophets? Gideon is listed right there, even though he did not show mercy when he got mercy. How can that be? Grace. Amen? God showed mercy to the unmerciful. That ought to be a dagger into our hearts. Okay? Let's get another example. He justified the unjustifiable. I want to look at Lot. Lot. Man, Lot's lots a headache for a lot of people's eternal doctrine. It really is. You put him through just about any scheme of eternal salvation, he's going to flunk. But there's one scheme that he doesn't flunk, and it's grace. Let's read this account. Lot, he was the nephew of Abraham. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And Abraham said, he's the, he's the elder statesman. He's the one that took care of him. He's the mentor. And he goes up to Lot and he says, Lot, <coughs> don't let our people fight. He says, I'll tell you what, you take a look out. You go this way, I'll go that way. If you want to go this way, I'll go that way. And Lot's sitting there instead of deferring to his, father, his uncle who took care of him, he says, that's greener. That's got more pools. That's got better irrigation. He says, I want that land. That's what he did. And Lot lifted, this is 1310, and Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld the plain of Jordan that it was well watered. And he says, I'm going that way. And then we find him, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then we see Lot. What did he do? He pitched his tent towards Sodom. Next time we read about him, you know what he does? His tent is right next to the wall. And then we read about him a little bit later. And guess what? He's sitting in the gate. You know what that means? He's assimilated into the culture and now is one of the elders of the city. It's kind of like in in the old days when the old guys would get in the porch of the, the hardware store in downtown. That's where all the stories were told and all the yarn were told. And that's where you go to get the old timers advice. Well, that's they sat in the gate. That's what that was like. He was one of them. And then we come to the very end of his life, and I don't want to get into all the gory details, but we leave him in Genesis 19 and verse 30, and he's sitting in a cave with two pregnant daughters. That's the last time we read of him. Except when we come forward to the New Testament, and Peter writes this. 2 Peter 2, verses 6 and 7. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto all those that should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot 
vexed with filthy conversation of the wicked. Just Lot? No, he's not saying only Lot. He's saying innocent Lot. He's saying righteous Lot. What's righteous about Lot? You know, the only thing righteous about Lot is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. He justified the unjustifiable. Are you you starting to get a picture? There's, There's hope for me? Amen? Okay. Forgive the unforgivable. I gotta go to the Apostle Paul. I'm gonna read about his account in 1 Timothy 1. I'm gonna start reading at verse 12. I'll tell you, Paul could not forgive himself. But guess what? God forgave him. And it doesn't matter if you forgive yourself. God forgave him. And I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, injurious. But I tamed mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern of them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Wow. Paul could not forgive himself, but God forgave him. And he held that on his shoulder for a long time. Okay? Why would God use me? Why would God love me? Why would Jesus die for me? Because he, <coughs> because he loved you. But what did I do? Nothing. I didn't say nothing. I said nothing. Okay? Nothing. Amen? There's no doubt about it. Paul is one of God's. When at the end of his life, he's saying, I'm in a straight betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Jesus, which is far better. He says, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go back to Jesus. That's his home. He was one of God's. God forgave the unforgivable. Hmm. Okay. I got to, how, how does this work? How does this work? How, how do we get into Christ? Okay. Well, let's, here's an example of a passage. This is Titus 3, 3 and 4. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, deserving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. You know who that we is? We ourselves also were. Those are children of God. Those were children of God that were acting that way. And what made the difference? My good looks. My money. My athletic ability. My charming personality. My singing. After leading the song this morning, you know it wasn't that. What was it? It was God's love. He loved the unlovable. Here's a second witness. 2 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. These are baptized church members. 
Know ye not that the unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God? I will never inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or effeminate, or abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's talking to church members. And he says, this great big old nasty list, that was you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What made the difference? Ah, this is where my money made the difference. This is where my good looks made the difference. No. What made the difference? The blood of Jesus. The love of Jesus. And then one more. You know, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, I, I want to give you a scripture. He atoned the unatonable. For as much that, this is First Peter 4, 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Who did he suffer for? For us, the children of God. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he hath suffered in the flesh, hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. He suffered you, and because he suffered for you, I'm going to try to walk in a way that's no longer representative of that dead lifestyle. It's not because I promised to do it. It's because he loved me. That's under the love umbrella. Okay? Look at that. He loved the unlovable. Well, that's those other people. No, we ourselves were. He washed the vile. Well, those those other people. No, that was you. He atoned the untonable. No, he died for you. Stop, stop pointing the finger at those other people. So holding up the mirror, that's who it's for. It's for me. It's for me. Okay. This is what happens. Jesus' teaching is replete with man's natural reaction to this kind of message. I've got three lessons of Jesus talking about how religious man, I didn't say children of God, I said religious people respond to this doctrine of grace. Okay? Jesus taught it. Here's the first one. This is in Matthew 18, 23 through 25. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents for as much as he had not to pay. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. You know what happened here? There was a man that owed him a pile of money. And he didn't have anything to pay. Amen? And the Lord said, ah, forget it. And then as we follow the rest of this story, this man right here, who had all the money forgiven him, had someone come up to him and owed him just a little bit of money. And he says, how dare you not pay me? And he threw him in jail. I owed all this to this Lord. He forgave me. This guy owes me just a little bit. 
But, but this is the key. Both people were in the same fix because they didn't have any money. And it didn't matter if it was a lot or a little, neither one of them had money. And it was all subject to mercy. So the one that owed a lot was forgiven a lot. The one that owed a little wasn't forgiven a little. Jesus is teaching that our reaction is that we turn around to our fellow man and we don't forgive. And we got to look at our perspective of all the offenses we've made to God and then we turn around sideways and looking at our brethren. We ought to start forgiving one another. Because God, Jesus knew our reaction to mercy would be to thankful for this one, but to go this way. This is how you really show thankfulness, right? The mercy you received as you go sideways. That's the first time he taught it. Here's the second time he taught it. He helped the helpless. This is in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Okay? And why beholdest thou, this is, um, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. And why beholdest thou the mote in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that his own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull the mote out of thy bro- thine eye, and behold the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. This is rhetorical. You know, just like in the first illustration, both of them are broke and couldn't pay the debt. I don't care if you got a beam or a speck of dust, sawdust in your eye, you can't see. Neither one of them could see. And the one with a telephone pole in his eye is going to help the one with a speck of dust in his eye. And neither one of them can see. Jesus knew we would respond that way. Just like we owed all that money, we wouldn't forgive a little bit of money. We got a telephone pole. We're going to make fun of this guy because he's got a speck of dust in his eye. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we forget our perspective on what we owe the Lord. Amen? Okay, here's the third one. He gives life to the lifeless. The illustration I want to use is these two people praying. Both of them are standing I don't say before God, but they're not really standing before God. One is, one's not. Let's read the passage. I'm in Luke 18. Let me read 10 through 14. Two men went up to pray, into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, every time I read that, that's what religion does to us. Notice it wasn't saying he was... He was kind of praying to God, but who in their right mind goes toe-to-toe to a God, look him in the eye, and say, God, I want to tell you what a blessing I am to your kingdom. Right? And you got this other guy, he's not going toe-to-toe. He said, he stood afar off, and he wasn't looking God in the eye. You know what he was doing? He was staring at his shoe tops. Yes? Looking at the ground. Sorry, let's read this. And the, other, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee <clears throat> that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this publican. <laughs> the publican looked down at the ground. The Pharisee looked down at his publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. 
God, you ought to be thankful I'm on your team. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I don't know why, but Jesus knew we would. He used the illustration of the debts, he used the illustration of the beam, and now he's used the illustration of the prayers. He knew that when we got in a religious way, we'd get full of ourselves and we would forget how dependent we were on God. And then we start looking at these little bitty differences between us sideways when there's this huge schism between us and God. It's minuscule. Okay. Okay, let's go back to our passage. Our passage is in 1 John 4. <coughs> I'd like to hit these four sections here. And this was manifested the love of God towards us because he sent his only begotten son in the world. Okay, let's, let's, let's go for these. Um, we've talked about the five love types. I want to stress that when we're looking at these love types, nearly all the loves in this passage are talking about sacrificial love. I've, I've got to stress this. Our culture is so inundated with feelings and emotions and sensuality that when we hear love, love and we go to our cultural standard, we don't have a clue what Scripture says. We've got to understand that it's the fifth love, the sacrificial love, and only the love. Or else Scripture won't make a lick of sense to us. So when we look, it's got to be that one. This is the love that God showed us, and it's the love hopefully we will give to our neighbor. And my friends, our closest neighbor is usually our spouse. And then from there, it's our children. Amen? And it's our church family. We should be extending that love, the sacrificial love. But I don't like that person. That's not the love we're talking about. We're talking about doing love, not feeling love. And I keep on telling you, if you do the doing love, the feeling love will come. Okay, the, the feeling love is not a prerequisite. Okay, it's, well, I'll pass on that. Okay, let's talk about this. God sent his only begotten son into the world. I, I can't, I was trying to think of an example. I can't, I, all I can get something is just, it just pales in comparison. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a television show that, that comes on and what is, what is the name of it? I haven't forget it. It's been a long time since I saw it. But it's one that like the CEO or the owner of a company will come down and take a menial job. What's it called? What? Undercover, Undercover boss. boss. That's what it is. Okay? So you'll get a guy that's a CEO. It's a, it's a major corporation. It could have maybe an airline with like 10,000 employees. And, and he's the big boss. And then what he'll do is he'll come on, he'll, he'll shave his head or shave a mustache or put on a fake mustache and he'll disguise himself and he'll go and he'll be in a, a, a thing where you're supposed to be putting luggage on a plane and, and, and these guys will go there because he wants to see what the job is like. And he's going to belittle himself and going from his 
lot of the office with his nice car and he'll go and he'll put some old work clothes on with some overhauls and he'll sweat and some of them get fired. <laughs> it's so funny. But, but they go down there and these people are barking at him in a little bitty way. They endure that for a week. And they want to see what the employees, what kind of lifestyle do they have? What kind of work environment do they have? What kind of attitude? Why do they do what they're doing? Where are the problems? How do they interact with the customer? And it's not until these bosses, these big time executives come down there and they see that and they put them in a bunch of different jobs. And it's real funny. Some of them do get fired because they work too slow. And he's working and working and he can't do it. And all, all of a sudden he realizes the stress that's putting on his employees and, you know, nine times out of ten they, they make some pretty significant changes. But, but can you imagine, I can't because I was never a CEO of a corporation with 10,000 employees, okay? And if I can't imagine that, how can I imagine the word being made flesh and coming down to earth and taking on our form? I mean, the, the CEO coming down is like, it's beyond anything I can comprehend. What Jesus did is, pew, pew, you know, it's way beyond that. Pew squared, okay? <laughs> I know the math teacher's coming out of me again. You got it? But, but that's what he did. Do you realize it's a love? For the CEO to come down and take a menial job, it's a love for the company. He really wants to know, what's, and he's going to endure that for a week. For Jesus to come down and take on human form, it's love to endure what we endured. And not only that, but it's love for God to send his son to endure what he endured. So just that is an act of love. He hasn't even died on the cross yet. Just coming to earth, just sending us, that is an act of love. We're not even talking about the spitting or the mocking or being made fun of. It's not there. Okay. Second thing is, he sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. <clears throat> now again, let's go back to the illustration I used at the beginning of the sermon, that, that pharmaceutical company. I, I, I don't know how you can put a dollar value on a loss of pain and suffering, but sometimes they do. Someone will lose someone Maybe some, a, a, a spouse will be killed in an accident where they found out that the accident was because safety procedures weren't implemented and there's going to be a great big payment of lost wages, but there's another payment for pain and suffering. I don't know how you put a dollar value on that. But in America, that's what we try to do. We try to fix everything with a dollar value. But Jesus Christ came and somehow he satisfied God. The schism that was between us and God, Jesus satisfied it. I, I can't tell you I completely understand how he did that. All I am is on this side of the cross, and I know he did it. And I say, thank you. So there's that schism. There was, there was that breach. I don't have to hide behind a tree in the garden. That was part of the breach. Jesus took care of it so we don't have to hide behind the tree. We have access to God. We can hit our knees, go to our closet 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, and talk to him. Jesus did that for us. I get mad at someone. I won't give them the time of day for a little while, and then I soften up sometimes. Jesus took care of that. As dirty and vile and disgusting as we were. Okay? Beloved, beloved. I wrote down some things. <laughs> think about who's beloved. Can, think about it this way. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Okay? The good things, I, the best things I do, that's not saying the stuff when I slip up. It's just the best things I can possibly do is at filthy rags. And then you got to put on the, all the other baggage that comes along with me. And God called that person beloved? I don't get it. I don't get it. All I know is it says it, I believe it, and I'm thankful for it. But I don't get it. I guess I don't get mercy. I don't get grace. I don't get this kind of love. I think maybe I get a little bit better than I did 10 years ago. But I know I still have a long way to go. And then finally we go to love one another. I got something for you. I put it in the notes. You know, the followers of Abraham, when, when you looked at religion... And you go back to the Old Testament and you looked at someone and you go, the followers, are, I can tell the difference between someone that follows Abraham and one that doesn't. They got circumcised. Okay? And then we go a little bit forward, a little bit more, and we go, I can tell the followers of Moses from the one that don't follow Moses. They keep the holy days. They keep the Sabbath. They keep the Passover. They, those people, they, they, they keep holy days. That's all I can tell. That's a follower of that. I can tell the followers of John the Baptist. You know what the followers of the Baptist do? They get baptized. I know someone that's a follower of John the Baptist. They got baptized. You know what the follower of Jesus is? Someone that loves their neighbor. I can tell someone that follows Jesus, they love their neighbor. Someone like, can't we go back to that Passover stuff? That's too hard. Sometimes I don't feel like doing that. Sometimes I don't want to do it. Sometimes I got to eat pride. Yeah, let's go back to the Passover system. It's easier. No, but the followers of Jesus love their neighbors. They, they love the unforgivable. They love the unmerciful. They love the unjustifiable. They love the incurable. They love the unredeemable, the unpardonable, the untonable, and the unremovable. Jesus did that for you. Oh, boy. I've got a long way to go. Amen? All right, let's close with this passage. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. <clears throat> but this was manifested, the sacrificial nature, the sacrificial love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And here is that sacrificial love, not that we love God, not that we worship God, not that we adored God, 
but that he sacrificed for us and sent his son to be propitiation for the sins for our sins beloved if god so sacrificed for us we ought also to sacrifice for one another <laughs>